Short, brief, and powerful. I'm sure this is going to be good. So let's welcome up Jamil. He's the head of our uh, ministry teams. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Zion. I'm glad you said short, brief, and powerful. I got the message. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll be real quick. Um, earlier this week, does everybody know what it, when, you're, what it, when your check engine light comes on in your car? Anybody ever had that experience? Okay. Well, I had that experience standing in the living room. Standing in the living room, I see a check engine light. And I go, Lord, what is that about? And he says, spiritually, your check engine light is on. And we know everything that's going on around the world, but so does God. And God is always taking care of Israel. Um, different things that happen during the course of the week. And he said, check engine light is on. It's time to word up. Put the word on. Put the word on. And he reminded me of Ephesians 6.12, that the, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness from on high. So it's demons. So I won't get long. But anyway, the check engine light had been on, and it started to flicker and flicker. You know when it went out? This morning, when I walked over to the testimony wall. I said, if anybody needs to be encouraged, go over to the testimony wall. That's good. That's when it went out. So I grabbed a few of them. I was standing there reading. There's about, I was asking uh, Tim Holmes, uh, we were, Palmer and I were standing there. I go, how many you think is up there? About 200? So God is not out of business. So whatever's going on in the world, Jesus Christ is alive. He's still healing. He's still delivering. He's still saving. He's still setting people free. Here's one. It says, my friend came to see Steve Backlund and sat in the white chair. That's our healing chair. The chair is not special. It's just where people know to come for prayer. In the white chair. Two or three weeks later, they went to the doctor. And the doctor told her she is cancer-free. Man, my light was going out really good when I started reading these. <laughs> this one says, healed of a six-year incurable autoimmune disease, autoimmune disease. Go, Jesus. Wow, so good. This one reads, we are miraculously pregnant with our daughter, due in June, whenever this was written, after battling nine years of infertility. Wow. So good. This will be the last one I read. God healed me of migraines that I suffered for 15 years. No one prayed for me. I just felt, just felt fire on my neck. Come on. And have never had one since. Over a year ago. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Amen. So good. Thank you. This might need to take out that light bulb with the check engine thing. Just to stay permanently encouraged. That was good. Yeah, I know we had a, a recent report, too, of some, in the last two weeks, someone who um, got healed of prostate cancer. 
And then uh, just during worship, someone came up and said they had, a, it was either a nine or a 15 year uh, injury in their shoulder. It popped in a lot of pain. And uh, during worship, it got warm all the way through the chest and said it was smooth as butter. So that's good news, yeah. Here's the thing about a testimony. A testimony is a legal precedent. Because God is no respecter of persons. And when you see him do it for one, that one person didn't earn it. They didn't, like, hit some spiritual lottery. They didn't, uh, you know, hit some level of holiness. And God's like, okay, I'm going to reward you now with a bonus. Here's some healing. No, no, they received it the same way everybody else is, by, by grace through faith. Because of what Jesus did, we received that. So we're going to be talking a lot about that today. And the terms of the blood covenant. So we're going to be on part two. And so part one was, I will be their God. And then uh, part two is going to be today, and they will be my people. We're going to look at how all will know them. God's going to open up himself to every person. There'll be another one. He's written his laws in our, heart, in our hearts and move us to follow his decrees. And he'll remember our sins no more. And so we're going to look at all those. It's going to be so good. But um, if you'll turn me to Genesis chapter 15, I believe we'll have it up here on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 15, we're going to read the whole chapter. How are you guys doing? Yeah. All right. After the, this is uh, God does something absolutely shocking. He enters into covenant with a human being. The creator enters into covenant with a creature. So here we go. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. His name was Abram before it got changed to Abraham. Came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? Uh, for I continue childless, and, heir of my uh, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, I've got, I don't have any kids. I'm going to make this servant. I'm going to adopt him as my, as, my, uh, as my heir. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your, off so shall your offspring be. And he, delivered, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This, that's one of the uh, biggest verses in the whole um, Bible there. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Just about every other religion is you do something to become righteous. You do something to become accepted. In Christianity, Abraham became a prototype of the new covenant believer. He just believed God, and he received it. So good. I had to be awesome, though. Every time, uh, you know, because Abraham, if you know the story, he had a long waiting period between promise and fulfillment. You know what the gap between when God promises you something and fulfillment, you know what that's called? Faith. <laughs> we were like, oh, God made this promise to me. It hasn't come true yet. Well, that's called unbelief. You're whining. But anyways, get back to faith. The gap is called faith. And so let's stay there. But I think it's just awesome, and you just imagine every time he walked out to a, a starry night, he had to have that, that reminder. Another place he's going to say, if you can number the sands of the seashore, they lived in the dirt. Every time he's dusting the sand, the, uh, sand off of his sandals, he had to be thinking, thinking about the promise, meditating on the promise. They didn't have a Bible back then, so he's meditating on the promise. Every time at night he see the, saw the stars, every time during the day he saw the sand. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, that was the land that he called them out of, to give you this land to possess. So he's promising him, this land that you're standing in, I'm about to give you all of it. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against each other. But you didn't see that coming. God's like, give me some animals. Whoosh. But if you, know this, if you know what we're going after, you, know, you understand what's happening. Uh, if you don't, I'll explain it. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham, Abram drove them away. 
Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land. He's prophesying and what's going to happen to his descendants at first. Will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. We'll explain all this in a little bit. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. You see the animal pieces in half. All of a sudden, Abraham's causing this sleep. He has this visionary experience. And there's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. If you remember last, uh, last week, we saw that that word is actually blood covenant. Made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. All right, so this chapter is pretty much foundational to the rest of the Bible. And so uh, we're going to go through it, through it. But God is entering into a covenant with man. So for those of you who weren't here last week, or for those of you who are whatever week it was, or those of you who don't have photographic memories, let's go through quickly what a blood covenant is, okay? So if I were entering into a blood covenant, the very first thing I would do is I would take off my coat, okay? And I would, I would give you my coat and be symbolic that all that I am, I'm now giving to you. We see the New Testament picks up these pictures and it says, put off the old man, put on the new, right? Take off everything that you used to be apart from Christ because you're going to get a whole new way of living. Colossians actually tells us to clothe ourselves with Christ, okay? This is covenant language here. The next thing after I took off my coat, I would take off my belt. What's that? It's got my dagger. It's got my sword. It's got my weapons on it. And I would give that to you. It would be symbolic that all of my strength and all of my power to fight is given to you. And uh, if anyone attacks you, they attack me too. We're going to fight this thing together, whatever comes our way, right? So then you would give me your coat and give me your belt. And so we're, we're agreeing we're going to enter into covenant. Now we're going to actually cut the covenant. So you know when one makes a covenant, you cut it because it's always with the shedding of blood. And so we would get an animal and we would split it right down the middle, right down the backbone, and the two halves would fall opposite each other. And we would have these walls of blood that we would then uh, we'd be standing in between. Now here's the symbolism of that. We are symbolizing I'm dying to everything that I was independent of you. My life before this covenant is now dead, and now I'm becoming one with a new person. We are now forming this new kind of life. We're, ha- we're coming alive to a new relationship to each other. And here's also the symbolism, that if I break this covenant, the same fate that uh, came upon these animals, may it come upon me. You're swearing this before God. May I be torn to pieces. Okay? So even as the animals died, I've died to all that was passed before me. It's a new life now. And then uh, with, this, with these walls of blood, we would walk this blood path. We would walk these figure eights. Uh, 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 we'd walk these figure eights, and we would come and we'd face each other. And we would begin to say, we'd begin to make vows of the covenant. We would say how we are going to be giving ourselves to one another. Then we would make a cut on the body. I know we went over this a whole week last week. I'm going through it quickly. We'd make a cut on the body. Most of the time, it was made through a wrist. It'd be a cutting of the wrist. And the two wrists would be put together, and our blood would flow into each other. And it's symbolized because the life is in the blood. My life is going into you. Your life is now going into me. And something's rubbed in there that stops the blood, but it also creates a scar. So there's a mark. There's a seal of the covenant. So every time I see that seal, I'm reminded that I'm in covenant. Anytime someone else sees that seal, they say, you know what? This person isn't just them. It's the person that they're in covenant with. 
At that time, we would uh, talk about all that we would come into. This would be the terms of the covenant. I would, I would list all of my assets and all of my liabilities. These are now available to you. My checkbook is now your checkbook. And uh, the same person, the same the person would tell me all of their assets, all of the all of the liabilities, and the two would become one. Here's something interesting. I'm not going to preach on this, but I think I'm going to do a series on the family maybe at the beginning of the year. Um, marriage in the Bible is seen as entering into a blood covenant. Think about this. In biblical times, when a man and a woman uh, would become married, they would consummate the marriage as part of the ceremony, and afterwards they would show the blood from the first union. Might feel a little bit cringy to discuss this on a Sunday morning. No diagrams coming up there or anything. <laughs> but I want you to see the symbolism of a covenant is there. There is the blood and there is the promise. There is the coming together of oneness. There is the changing of names. You're entering into a blood covenant. So guys and gals, do you, know, do you know why you wear a wedding ring? It's because it is now the symbol of the covenant. It's the seal of the covenant. We don't cut our wrists anymore. I'm so thankful for that. I do a lot of weddings. I would probably be passed out. If I, uh, it was blood up there and I had to cut wrists, I was pre-med in, uh, in college and I volunteered in the emergency room for uh, one summer. I was like, you know what? I think I need to change. This is, I was like sick every single day. I'm like, oh, people just telling me their problems. I was getting queasy. But um, here's the picture of the, of the sign of the covenant. Is it's, it's like a link in a chain, not like a ball in a chain, but it's like the husband has one link, the wife has another link. We are eternally linked together. So every time you wear that ring, I want you to picture, it's, just, it's as if you had the sign on your wrist. It's a sign of the symbol that the two have become one. Um, I think it helps to look at rings like that. So I used this example the other day. Uh, the names would be exchanged, and so if I had entered into a covenant with Ray Diani, his name would now be Ray Baker Diani, and I would be Jim Diani Baker. We are a completely different person now because two have become one. And the people that uh, you would be in covenant with uh, if someone was in covenant with me, they would be known as the friend of Jim. That would be the phrase, the friend of Jim. Now, we throw the word friend around pretty cheaply around here, but in uh, cultures that have a true covenant, that, that means that you are in covenant. You are in blood covenant with somebody. Uh, finally, we would sit down, we would have a meal together, and the meal is reenacting the whole covenant. You're literally taking the bread. You're taking the wine. That's what they had in the covenant meal. And you're saying that the, this piece of bread, it represents all that I am. And as you eat it, you are literally taking me into yourself, and I'm taking you into myself. You guys starting to see some of the symbolism? If not, listen to the first message. All right, so that was a summation of what we said last week. And as we saw here, God has entered into covenant with Abraham. This is about to get super good. This message is going to show you how do you actually live out of the power of the covenant. So I hope you guys are listening up. I hope that I never get used to saying God entered into a covenant with man. Wow. Like we can't just, oh, just, just let that roll off. We have, to, we have to let the gravity of that hit us. That um, God himself is in such a union, it could be described like a marriage. God is married to us. He is committed to us. He is never going to leave us. And I don't think we can ever begin to comprehend that the creator is in covenant with, uh, with his creation. And so he enters into this covenant with Abram. Uh, they will become one. They will un enter this unbreakable covenant of blood. And Genesis 15 is where this whole thing begins. And so let's look at this. And so uh, Genesis 15, 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay? In a sense, this is God taking off his coat and God taking off his belt with his sword and his shield. God cannot give things because he contains things and he is in all things, right? He's holding all things together by his word. God does not possess things to give. He is who he is, right? So God does not give Abraham a shield or a sword. Instead, he says, I am your shield. 
In other words, if anybody touches you, Abraham, they've got to touch me first. And then he says, your reward will be very great. Okay, so his reward is him taking off his coat. All that I am, your reward is God himself. And then him saying his shield, that's him taking off his belt. And so um, the first step of the covenant was made. I want you to see this. God took the initiative. It wasn't like Abraham was like super qualified. Abraham, um, when God found him, he was worshiping other gods. It wasn't like he was the most qualified guy in the room. God took the initiative and chose Abraham. And Abraham begins to question this. He's saying, listen, this is unbelievable. I can't take this all in. Like, you're wanting to enter into covenant with me. I don't have anything to offer you. And um, God says, okay, I'm going to come down to your level. I'm going to put it in a language that you understand. Go get some animals. Go get a whole bunch of animals, and I want you to split them down the middle. Now, if you were with us for the uh, series, what was it called? Guts, Grace, and the Gospel was a series on the five offerings of Leviticus. They had very specific ways that they cut up the animals. But I want you to see is none of those offerings that they ever split the animals down the middle. The only time the animal was split down the middle was for the covenant. So Abraham takes these animals, he splits them down the middle, and in a normal uh, blood covenant, what happens is the two people entering the covenant, they would walk this figure eight through this blood path, and the, the two people would do it. And so guess what happens? God puts Abraham to sleep, and God, uh, let's get to this in a second. I don't want to spoil it. God puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham never walks through the path. This is completely shocking. It's like God saying, listen, Abraham, if you do anything more to this covenant than just lay here, you're going to screw the whole thing up. There is no way you're going to keep your part. I mean, Abraham blows it. He lies. He does all these things. If Abraham had entered into covenant on behalf of mankind, the whole thing would have been screwed up because Abraham would have screwed it up probably day one, right? So he's like, Abraham, the best thing you can do is have me put you to sleep because if man gets involved, I'll never be able to bless you the way I want to. So God causes Abraham to fall into this deep sleep, and he has this very strange vision, okay? So Abraham, uh, Abraham should have been walking through the pieces of the animal, but in this vision, he sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass through the pieces. I want you to see this. Instead of Abraham passing through the pieces, someone took his place. And in his vision, he said, all I saw was this flaming radiance. It was like a smoking oven. It was like a pillar of fire. It was like a flaming torch, different translations. And this flaming torch went through the pieces just where Abraham should have gone. Somebody else took the place in the covenant. Is somebody getting this yet? So how can God, the holy, holy, holy creator of the universe, how can he enter into covenant with sinful man? He can't. Man has nothing to give. Man's going to break it. Man is going to screw it up. There's no point that man can ever offer anything to God. If man is going to enter into covenant with God, God has to do everything. So in, usual, uh, in, uh, in a usual covenant, each party brings something to the table. And so in the 3rd century, uh, before Christ, 3rd century B.C., they were trying to translate the Old Testament Hebrew into a Greek Old Testament, and they called it the Septuagint. And when they got to the word for blood covenant, they didn't, the Greeks didn't have any language in their, uh, any word in their language for it, just like English. We don't have any word that really translates it. And so they came up with this word. Um, I've been saying it all morning to Mary, and she's been wondering why I say this. Diathike. And uh, diathike is one of those words that's kind of fun to say, like kumquat. It's just, like, it's just kind of fun to say. It does, like, I don't even know why it's fun to say. But uh, diathike, who wants to try it with me? Dia, no, I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Diathike. It's even more fun. Diathike. All right, one, two, three. Dieth See, it just makes you happy. And so the translator said the best way to describe this Hebrew word, it was kind of a contract word from the Greek world, but they kind of, you know, they, they kind of got some meaning around it, and they were able to infuse it with some new meaning. And the idea of a diathiki is it's a covenant where God does everything. Wow. It's not like a normal covenant. Wow. 
It's a different kind of covenant where God does the whole thing. So imagine I see a homeless person on the street, and um, I'm going to enter into covenant with this person. This person has nothing to offer me. I'm going to say all of my resources are available to you. All of your problems now become my problems. I'm not gaining anything out of this. Right? It would be completely because my heart is moved, and I want to bless this person. That's a diatheke. Oh, that's so good. It just is happy, happy word. And so I want you to see this. God is coming down the roadside of the world, and he sees man living there in a homeless condition, basically, a sinful condition with nothing to offer. And uh, you and I don't have anything to offer, but here's the good news. It's a diatheke. 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 God is going to be taking all the initiative. And so God, God can't swear to man. God has to swear to himself. And these things, we see that in Hebrews. God's like, there's no one greater than he could swear to. So he had to swear to himself because he's the one who's going through the pieces. So one person of the Godhead came and took man's place and became man. This is so good. Abraham, in his vision, he saw someone else taking his place. And he said it was like a radiance of glory passing through the pieces of the covenant. Here's God the Father, and here's God the Son entering into a solemn covenant together. Jesus on behalf of mankind. Do you guys remember in John 8, 56, where Jesus said to a group of Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus? When he saw the radiance of his glory passing through the pieces. Whew. Why? Because it was a diatheke. God did it all. God made the suggestion to Abraham. God took the initiative with Abraham. God came down and took man's place and entered into covenant for man. He now says to man, I've done everything, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, so stop trying to deserve it, stop trying to earn it, just receive it because I love you. I've done everything that's needed, it's yours. And then there was a seal to the covenant. Um, Abraham was circumcised, and that was, became the seal of the covenant, the mark of the covenant. All of his unborn children would be introduced to that covenant, and they would bear that mark on their body. So um, I would imagine several times a day, as they went to the bathroom or whatever was happening, they were reminded of the covenant. Come on, this is church. We can, we can. I'm not pulling up any diagrams for that one either. Weird place for silence there, but there we are. They had a reminder daily that they were in a blood covenant. And uh, then you know Abram. Abram had his name changed. He went from Abram to Abraham. Now, the name of, uh, of God in Hebrew is unpronounceable. The Jews, when they, uh, when they wrote it, they purposely made it so it couldn't be pronounced. They took out all the vowels. So you have a, basically a Y-H-W-H um, would be roughly it. Um, when they came over to a German version, it was J-H-V-H. That's why we say Jehovah instead of Yahweh. But it's kind of the same name. It's unpronounceable. The reason the Jews did it is they thought no one could ever desecrate the name of God if they could ever say the name of God. So it seems to be, though, it's like when God, um, the, the word... The word for spirit, uh, for the spirit of God, is the word breath or wind. And so it's almost like when God breathed into Adam, he said his name, Yahweh. It's like the picture of wind, right? So that H is real pronounced in the name of God, is real prominent. And so I want you to see this. God is putting his name into Abraham as part of this covenant. Abram to Abraham. And then he's like, Sarah. Sarah's getting into this whole thing, too. She went from Sarai to Sarah. So he's putting his name. Not only that, this is the wonder of all wonders. God not only put his name on there, he put Abraham's name on his from that day forward. And all the way through today, he's known as the God of Abraham. 
God put his name into man, and man put his name into God. It's a covenant. Woo! They bore in their very names the name of God. And all through the Bible, uh, together, Abraham was called the friend of God. That's a picture of the covenant. He was the one who walked in blood covenant. And God says there's three terms of this covenant. There's three parts to it. You shall have a seed. There's going to be a descendant. And in this descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He said, secondly, in this blessing, I will bless you. Like you're going to, and we're going to see, he spells it out. Bless, bless, bless. You're going to see all these things. And then thirdly, he said, this land where we're doing this covenant is going to be yours. And so we saw all the unborn children, like we saw um, last time, all the unborn children are included in this covenant. When they come of age, they're able to choose whether or not they want to be a part of this covenant. So Abraham had a son called Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, who's got his name changed, Israel. Israel had 12 sons, and they uh, begotten and begotten and were fruitful and multiplied. And after 400 years, they had 3 million people. Okay, so that's all it took, 3 million, 12 to 3 million, just took 400 years. And they were very fruitful. And uh, by this time, though, they were enslaved in the land of Egypt. Remember when God prophesied, he said, here's what's going to happen. They're going to be enslaved, and I'm going to deliver them. He said 400 years. This is what happens. And you remember, uh, the, the, um, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, children of Jacob, uh, they begin to cry out. Do you remember what they cried out? They didn't say, oh, God, please get us out of slavery. No, no, no. They went back to the covenant. It basically said, God, remember what you said to Abraham. Remember, we are your blood covenant children. Deliver us because we are married to you. We are in covenant. They didn't ask God to do something. They went back to the covenant. They, they put their confidence in the fact that they had a blood covenant with God. Moses was sent by, the, um, by God to deliver his people. And when he spoke to Pharaoh, Moses didn't say, let these people go. He said, let my people go. Why was he saying that? Because God told Moses, you will be as God to Pharaoh. So he was speaking as God, let God's people go. Let my people go. It wasn't Moses' people, it was God's people. This is good. Why? Because they're in covenant. I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's let Pharaoh know, you have dared to touch the bride of God. You have dared to touch the people that God is married to. Let them go. That's why the plagues came upon Egypt, because they dared to touch the blood covenant people. Now the children of Israel go free. They move out in the wilderness. And uh, as they begin to do this, God, I want you to get this picture. They had been delivered out of Egypt, but Egypt had not been delivered out of them. Okay? God was uh, making them this people, but he wanted them to become a kingdom of priests who would show what God is like to the world, but they still had this slave thinking on the inside. So what does he do? He leads them into emergency after emergency so they can get it through their mind over and over again. God is for me. This is what he's like. And so uh, they get out in the wilderness. Where are they going to get water from? Where are they going to get food from? Where are they going to get protection from? Where are they going to get direction from? How are they going to get healed? How are they going to remain healthy? How are they going to get water? Because they're going to, I mean, you out in the desert, you're going to die pretty soon, right? There's no shade. There's no food any of that. So Moses went with his heart open to God, and it's interesting. He says, God, you've got a problem. He didn't say, we've got a problem. God, you've got a problem. Why? Because we have access to your checkbook now. We are in covenant, and all of our problems are now your problems, and we ain't got no solutions. We are helpless. I want you guys to see, oh, just keep looking for helpless dependence is when God moves. When we try to do it our own way, God's hands are tied. That's not how it works. Okay? Just giving you a little hint here. We're going to see this over and over again. Uh, he's telling God, we're helpless. We were nothing when you picked us up. Nothing's improved along the way. We still ain't got nothing to offer you. We're still helpless. 
And uh, we need guidance. Lord, where do we go from here? These three million people steadily walking through the desert. And uh, where are we going? God, you've got a problem. And so uh, as they walk to the edge of, uh, of, uh, of, the, of the wilderness here, God comes as a glory cloud. God comes as a, as, a, as a cloud and begins to shade them from the sun and begin directing them. At night, somehow the, the cloud transformed into a pillar of fire and kept them warm uh, during the evening. They're hungry. Moses goes to God and says, God, you've got a problem. If we're hungry, uh, you are our supply. We're married. Therefore, our hunger is swallowed up by your supply. We're, we are united. So what happens? Manna falls down at the edge of the cloud for 40 years in the desert. And uh, they, they ate over and over again. Amazingly, their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. I know some ladies would not be excited about wearing the same thing for 40 years, but I think a lot of us guys would be like, that's not a bad deal. <laughs> never have to change my clothes, never have to go shopping. Not a bad deal. And so God made their clothing last so it didn't wear out. And uh, so what was happening in these 40 years in the desert? God's training them what it's like to be the people of God. I will be their God. They will be my people. You have a need, you don't try to meet it in your own strength. You come to him in helpless dependence, seeing who he is, trusting him that, his, uh, that your need is going to be swallowed up by his infinite supply. One of the names of God is El Shaddai, which means the God of infinite supply. And he had to lead them into emergency after emergency so they could see an aspect of God, so they could learn what's he doing. He's getting Egypt out of them, and he's getting kingdom in, into them. I'm sure God was thinking, when will you guys learn this? <laughs> you know, uh, But you know what? You and I have to learn to be helpless. For some strange reason, we want to have a part in it. We want to feel good. like We are contributing something to the covenant. But it's a diathiki. God does it all. And uh, God had to keep leading his people. And so as soon as they got there and they realized, okay, God, this is your problem. It's not our problem. And uh, he says, okay, now you've got it. I'll be the supplier right now. So after 40 years in the desert, they finally go into the land that God promised them. Now he gives them another list of blessings. Remember, one of the terms of covenant was with blessing, I will bless you. He begins to say, listen, you guys are going to have nonstop bumper harvests. Your animals will have more flocks than any others. You won't be sick. You will never have need of money. In fact, you'll be the one lending to nations. You will not be borrowing. You'll be the head and not the tail. Blessings, blessings, blessings. And God kept his word. He said, in blessing, I will bless you. Uh, he said, this land, I'm going to give it to you. It was, a, it was the second term of the, of the covenant. And he said from the U river Euphrates all the way to the river Nile. In the New Testament, two different places, it shows that God gave them everything. He kept in two different places. He gave them all that land that he promised. And but it was interesting how they took it. So remember, um, you know, Joshua crosses over, and uh, they're, they're, walking, they're walking towards the promised land. And God says, I've already given this to you. It's already yours. Everywhere the sole of your foot will tread, I've already given it to you. He says, I just want you to do one thing, Joshua. I want you to immerse your mind in the covenant. What do you say? I want you to meditate in the law. He wasn't trying to memorize all the rules. He was immersing his mind in the covenant so he knew what was available to him. He says, when you do that, now you'll know what's coming to you. Learn what I promised you. And as soon as you know that, as soon as you see it, all you have to do is put your foot there and it's yours. I've given it to you. Nobody can take it away from you. All you have to do is speak the word, and it's done because it's already been given. So Joshua goes out, and I'm sure he was scared like anybody else because they had to cross the Jordan River. And he announces, he gets this word from the Lord, and he announces, hey, we're going to do it in three days. And so it could have been that night, but he kind of probably chickened out a little bit. He's like, in three days, you know. And I love how he did it. He sent the priests out first. 
And uh, I'm sure he was like cheering him on. I mean, I don't know. I, don't, yeah, I wouldn't want to be the guy like stepping out there. And so he, he's like, priest, this is going to be great. <laughs> you know, I've got full faith. You go do it. And so the priests are out there. He's cheering him on. The water's part. I'm sure he kind of jumped at the head of the line. He's like, all right, follow me now. And so um, what happens? They walk across into a land where anywhere they put their foot was theirs. They didn't even have to fight. They just had to rest and say, it shall be so. So there was Vikings in the land. There was these terrible warriors called Philistines. You have to understand, these Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years. They didn't know how to fight. And now they're coming against a warring tribe of giants. Okay, So um, they came in. What were the Philistines doing? They were coming in trying to take away the land of God's covenant people. God had promised them this. This was their land. They're coming in trying to do it. So there was a young teenage boy, maybe 16, 17 years old, named David. And uh, these great monstrous Vikings, they would come. They were trained for war. And they came, and uh, a custom of their day was to have, just have one man fight. And so they would take a champion from Philistine and a, a champion from Israel. And instead of everybody fighting, uh, the, champion would, the champions would fight. And if Israel's champion won, all of Philistia would become their servants. If Philistine won, then they got the land, and all of Israel would be the slaves. And so for six weeks, uh, Israel stood there trembling in, in fear. Uh, but David comes along, and what he'd, he'd been doing with the sheep, he'd been meditating on the covenant day and night. He's writing songs about the law of the Lord and how it was delight. Why? Because he's meditating on the covenant. He knows what he's got coming to them. And he goes up there, and he's amazed. He hears Goliath say, um, anybody come and fight me? David looks around to see where everyone's going. They're going the other way. They're running in terror, right? And uh, David says, let me go. And his brother's like, shut up. Who do you think he is? Who do you think you are? Remember this? And David's like, listen, let me go. And David says some important words. This Philistine is not defying us. He's defying God. Remember, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What's uncircumcised? He doesn't have the mark of the covenant. We're circumcised. We've got the mark of the covenant. I know what's available to us. He's going in with confidence in the covenant, not confidence in his slingshot. You guys see where David's confidence is coming from. When David went out there, he actually defeated Goliath with his words. The slingshot was just an after effect. He went out and said, you're not attacking us. You're defying the Lord of hosts. He gave us this land. You can't do that. We're in covenant with him. And begins to say, I will do this to you. Remember, I'm going to chop off your head and feed it to the carcass of the army and all this stuff. This shall happen to you. The stone was just incidental to the facts of the covenant. So Goliath was already defeated by the words because David knew his covenant. There was a king of Judah named Jehoshaphat. Probably nobody's named their kid to hear that. And there was this vast army from Edom coming in to, to just absolutely destroy them. And he didn't go out and fight. In a sense, he turned and said, God, I'm scared because I'm human, but I know we're in covenant together. Those people attacking us, they're not attacking us. They're attacking you because we're one. You've got a problem. God's like, that's right. And he gives him this instructions in 2 Chronicles 20, 16. The battle is not yours. But God's. He gives it through a, a prophetic word from Jehaziel. The battle is not yours. The battle is God's. This is good stuff. Why? So what happened to the people of Israel? They went home and slept that night, and every snore was for the glory of God. They were resting in what God had said. They believed the covenant. And uh, the next day, um, uh, they had an interesting strategy. They sent out the worshipers in the battle. No swords. Trumpets. Um, I don't know what sounds, I don't know what instruments they had. And so uh, they had their instruments. They're, they're Hebrew instruments. It was very powerful. And, um, and God set up ambushes, and the different factions of the army began to kill each other, and they didn't even have to lift a finger. Wow. What happened? They helplessly came to God, 
and their need was swallowed up in God's great supply. I love their attitude. God, we believe in you, and we know this is your problem because we are one. We could go on with lots more stories of this. I mean, uh, Hezekiah, there's just some great stories. But I want you guys to get this. God chose Israel because he loved the Gentiles. It wasn't like, too bad for all y'all. I just like these people. These are my favorites. No, 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 no. It said that Israel was to, be a light, was to be a light to the nations. So they were to take that their relationship with God, who was blessing their crops, and it said their women would never miscarry, and they'd have pure drinking water, and the Lord would be their healer, and bless, 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 all these things. And people were looking, oh, they, only, they, they take one day off a week. We're working seven days a week. They're taking one year off in seven. They, they, you know, they're, they're doing all these things. And uh, they were to see that this is the one true God. They were to be a light to the nation so everyone could come to know God. Now, Israel didn't walk that whole thing out, but that was the plan. But it's interesting. So the, uh, Israel receives all these blessings, and it says that these people died in faith looking, to some, looking on to something that hasn't come yet. Think about that. They're seeing all these miracles, and like, we get it, but we know that this was pointing to something else. It didn't happen until that first part of the covenant promise where the descendant of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is how you and I get in on it. Jesus is the promise. He's the, dece- he's the seed. He's the descendant of Abraham through who all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the one that Abraham saw back in the vision who carries not just us to this split apart animal, but carries us to himself, carries us to the cross, carried us into the grave, carries us into ascension with heaven. Now we are, you know, we are one with Christ. Everything that is now true of Christ, we now have access to. God and man are, uh, are in covenant, and Jesus has fulfilled it so we can have direct relationship with God. We don't have to go through the animals. We don't have to go through the sacrifices. We can go right to God himself. He, uh, he's telling his disciples, I'm coming to cut a new covenant. Remember when he's uh, doing the Lord's Supper? He says, this, is the new cu- this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's no longer these animals that are split in half. It's no longer these sacrifices that are covering your sin. It's now the blood of God. That, 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 that flaming radiance that passed through those pieces is now going to fulfill it. He said the old covenant is fading, it's collapsing, it did its work. It gave us the types and shadows, it gave us an understanding, it pointed us towards the one true God. But this new covenant is going to deal with the sin problem. In the old covenant, it didn't change the hearts. But under this new covenant, we can have a heart that now wants to follow God. We can all know God personally for ourselves, not just because somebody else said it. We're going to get into that some other weeks. The blessing that God promised to Abraham, according to Galatians 3, was not just a little bit of bread out of heaven, it was not just a little bit of water to rock, a little bit of clothes that never wear out. The blessing was that in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He says, I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he is going to be as Jesus to you. And I want you to see this. God did the whole thing. This new covenant is also a diatheke. God did it. Uh, God says, in blessing, I will bless you. I will wipe out your sins. I will write my laws in your heart. I will bring you to myself, and you will know me, and I will be your God and you will be my people. Under the new covenant, we still have the same thing. He will be our God, and we will be his people. Every name of God, a lot of people look at the Old Testament, they're like, oh, that's Old Testament. He says, I'm the Lord your healer. Well, that was the Old Testament. I'm Lord your provider. I want you guys to get this. He doesn't change. It's not like, I'm Lord your healer. Oh, sorry, new covenant. It's just just forgiveness of sin. No, no, part of the terms of of the new covenant is, I will still be your God, and you will be my people. All those things that he was under the old covenant, he is in the new. We just relate to him in a different way. We relate to him through the Holy Spirit now. The land that Abraham was looking for 
Abraham's like, listen, I'm not going to just make a house here on the edge of the Mediterranean. He says, I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham saw it wasn't just about these physical things. I believe it includes a lot of those things. He says, I'm looking for a heavenly country. Listen, you and I may have an earthly address, but you are a citizen of an unseen realm. You are a citizen of a heavenly country. Your body, this is just a tent where you live in. This is how you relate to people. You relate to people through your words. But the real you is not your body. The real you is this person who you are on the inside. And that person who you are on the inside actually also has a heavenly realm. You actually have access to an invisible realm. The Bible calls it heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's what Abraham was waiting for. He was waiting to be carried into the presence of God so he could live in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit by experience, not by theory. Because God did it, there's not a thing you and I can do to accomplish any part of your salvation. Listen, there's nothing you can do to have victory over satanic powers. If you go there in your own strength, you're getting your butt kicked. There's not one thing you can do to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know people that have fasted and prayed and, and strived. That ain't helping any. It's a diatheke. God did the whole thing. Your part is to come in helpless dependence and receive it. There's only two things you can contribute to this whole thing. The first thing is you can contribute your sin. Hey, God, here's all my sin. He's like, thanks. I already took care of that. You need to acknowledge that, you're, that your part of needing this whole covenant is you sinned. That's, what, that's part of what repentance is. is I, you, know, you can't say the devil made me do it. I had bad parents. No, no, no. You have to own the fact I chose to do some things. I chose to live my life apart from God. So you can give God your sin, and the second thing you can do is say, yes, thank you. That's it. That's your part. Well, hold on, Jim. Well, don't we got to do a whole bunch of things? Reading your Bible is wisdom. It's not works. <laughs> How are you going to know what's in the covenant if you never read the terms of the covenant, <laughs> right? Like prayer, like you get to have a personal relationship with God. It's not earning you anything. It's wisdom to get to know God. Your part God, I sinned. Here you go. Thank you. I already took care of that. And then when you see the promises, your part is to say, yes, thank you, Jesus. And the Bible calls that faith. I know it's very humbling. Not really exciting. I know there's lots of uh, sermons out there about how hungry you need to be and you need to press in and you need to do this. Guys, the gospel is the news of what has already been done for you. The word good news, news means something that has already happened, not an announcement of what you must now do. So anytime the gospel that you're hearing is emphasizing the things you need to do, it ain't the gospel. The gospel is completely focused on what Jesus has done, and our response is to say, thank you, Jesus. Wow. Helplessness is where we begin, and you will never outgrow it. If you can learn to be helpless, you've got it made in the Christian life. The life of faith begins by helplessly receiving. Again, the beginning is say, Lord, I'm to blame. I blew it. I sinned. And um, so I contribute my sin as a helpless sinner. But then what happens? God makes me righteous. He's not like, okay, you, give me, you contributed your sin. That's who you are for all of eternity. You're this worthless sinner. No, no, no. He takes it and he gives you his righteousness. I want you to see our problem was sin, and that got swallowed up in who God is. We get his Righteousness. What does righteousness mean? It means that we've now entered into a realm where God is no longer dealing with us based on our behavior. He's dealing with us based on Jesus' behavior. You probably heard me use this illustration before. When our kids were little, um, we, they, they would show us the report cards. We'd give them a certain amount of money for A's, 
They got nothing for beef. Sorry, that's what, that was just the rules of the Baker House. So, um, and so, uh, so a lot of people, they're coming to God with their report card waiting to be rewarded. That's the old covenant. Under the new covenant, you're coming to God with Jesus' report card because you've been made one with him, and now God delights to treat you as if you were Jesus himself. How are we doing? That's the helplessness of faith. If you have a need, God has already provided an answer. And as you helplessly come to him with your need, his supply swallows up your need. Listen to Psalm 81.10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In that context, here's what he says. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I've heard so many preachers talk about, you know, you don't need to prepare. You just claim this verse. Open up your mouth wide and God will fill it. This is not a verse for an unprepared preacher hoping that something comes out. Okay, so like... You know, whatever on that. And so um, here's the picture. It's a picture of a baby bird. I mean, baby birds are basically like a giant beak with like a little bit of flesh hold, uh, you know, a little bit of flesh hanging out, a little bit of head there. What are they doing? In total weakness, right? They can't feed themselves, so they open their beak to their mother, and the mother stuffs it full, right? God says, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. How did it work when they were in the land of Egypt? They were like little baby birds, helplessly depending on him. Are you guys getting the picture? It's all those people did in the wilderness. They said, God, we're helpless, we're weak, we're learning to be weaker and weaker so you can be our strength. So he leads them into emergency after emergency so they get the lesson over and over again. I want you guys to get this. In the Christian life, weak is the new strong. Only when you recognize your weakness can you depend on his strength. Look what God said to the Apostle Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in in weakness. And helpless dependence. How is his power perfected in us when we're weak? When, not like, oh, I'm so weak. It's like I recognize I can't do anything. This is not my problem. God, you've got a problem because we're one. And I now have access to your resources in the situation. So how do you live the life of Christ? How do you have his strength go through you? Um, there's, a, there's a verse, I forgot to write it down, Philippians, where it says um, something. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That word strengthen is, is the word infused, okay? And so um, the word strengthen, it means, it means to unite or infuse his strength into me so that his strength becomes my strength. That's perfect. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so let's say somebody does something to make you angry, but you're a Christian and you're like, man, I shouldn't be getting angry. Now I'm angry that I got angry and you got, this whole spiral is going down, right? Anyone else had that? So how do you handle this? You handle it with the covenant. You handle it with the covenant. I stand before the situation, and I feel weak and helpless. All those negative emotions are simply reminders to you that this is not your problem. You are weak and helpless to, to handle this problem. I don't get afraid of those things. I don't get angry at them. I say, Lord, you are, and fill in the blank with whatever you need. This is, I mean, you see this throughout the Old Testament. Lord, you are my strength. What did David need? He needed strength. And he was recognizing his weakness. Lord, you are my rock. You are my shield. You are my healer. So if I'm angry, I say, Lord, you are my love or whatever it is I need to be the antidote to that. If I'm afraid, Lord, you are my boldness. If I'm impatient, I feel impatience rising with me. Lord, you are my patience. I've seen how this works. I I make it a matter of the covenant. I don't take it in my own hands. I'm allowing the Lord to be himself through me by putting myself in a place of weakness of dependence. If I'm sick, Jesus, you are my healer. Guys, if you have a, if you need in your body, I've got some good news. 
His supply wants to swallow up your need by you simply saying, thank you, Jesus. This belongs to me. This is good news. If you've got a, if you've got a need of provision, one of his names is provider. Okay, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Jehovah Jireh was a name that he showed himself in the Old Testament. So how do you receive provision? Part of it starts with recognizing, God, you are my supply. You are my provider. And you're coming to that point of rest. And he may give you an idea, may give you creativity, may have someone else give something to you. Lots of different ways. Hebrews chapter 4 says, this is called the rest of faith. And he says, we labor to enter into the rest. So what's the hard work of Christianity? Is getting to that point where we're taking a nap in God. We're recognizing, he's done it. I don't have to do anything else. Lord, you are this. And I'm counting on it. I'm putting my confidence in. I'm trusting the fact that you are going to be who you said you would be. Guys, that's how it works. That's the Christian life. You're called an heir of God. H-E-I-R, an heir of God. You get to inherit God. So I want you to imagine that you are an heir to the Rockefeller fortune or whatever fortune you want to do. I, I could only think of Rockefeller. And so um, the Rockefeller fortune, and let's say you had a $10,000 need. And um, guess what? You're part of the uh, Rockefeller uh, fortune. That need would get swallowed up in the supply of the Rockefeller fortune. That's how it works. There's a word for this in the Bible. It's weight on the Lord. Weight on the Lord. The word weight there, okay? The, um, the Hebrews, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The, the Hebrew, they spoke in word pictures. I don't know why they did this, but this is how they do it. And so sometimes it's a little difficult to translate it into English. But here's what the word weight means um, in Hebrew. It means to braid. This is going to be a great picture for you guys. You know, braiding, like you take your kid's hair, you divide it like into thirds, and it's like, and it all becomes like one little braid here, right? The word weight is to braid. Now, when my wife and I got married 29 years ago today, happy anniversary, babe. She told me that she would be at the church at a certain day and a certain time, October 22nd, right about noon. And so, 1994. And so, um, uh, I came there, and I waited, and, I sh- and I, she showed up, and I was not disappointed. She kept her word. I waited, she showed up, and the Lord began to braid our lives together. The Bible says, as you wait on the Lord, expecting him to keep his covenant, you are braided together, right? So there's a strand called the Father, there's a strand called the Son, and there's a strand of you somewhere in between. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, they'll put a little Father and the Son, and the you, Father, you, Jesus, you, begins to wave it together. And, uh, until you are recognizing your oneness and God's strength goes through you. You're waiting on the Lord, expecting his covenant, and he weaves himself into your situation. That's good news. I want you to imagine a person who has a $10,000 need. And they look at their bank statement and they see they've got a million dollars in the bank. But then they look in their wallet and they say, I've only got $100. What am I going to do? I've got this huge need. That is most of Christianity. In the Bible contains their bank statement. It contains the list of the supply of God's need. But they look at their personal experience, their current weak state. They say, I've only got 100 bucks. What am I going to do? As you read and meditate on the word of God, you get to see what's in your spiritual bank account. You're literally reading your spiritual bank statement. And as you wait on the Lord, expecting him to fulfill his covenant, that is how you take the money from your bank account and put it into your hand. The Bible calls that faith. Faith appropriates what's in the invisible realm and brings it into the visible realm to meet your need. Let's stand for closing prayer. You guys good? Are we still doing that offering?
Okay. We're going to take up a special offering for somebody here in a second. Somebody ask you a question. What's your need today? If you have no needs, God bless you. Come lay hands on the rest of us. What's your need today? If you need healing, if you need peace, if you need provision, if you need salvation, you need forgiveness of sin, whatever that might be, uh, I want you to just give this. The Lord is, and then fill in the blank. You're recognizing, God, this is your problem. I, I can't handle this problem. I've got nothing to contribute. I'm like that little bird. And now, Lord, as I wait on you, I'm being braided into this situation. So I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to hear. And, uh, and uh, maybe you don't know what your need is, or maybe you don't know what the Lord is. And so maybe just still yourself over the Lord and say, God, I've got this need. Who do you want to be for me? And then just as a statement of faith in your mind to say, the Lord is my strength, my healer, my confidence, my boldness, my provision, whatever it might be. So I'm just going to give you 30 seconds for that. The Lord is. Jesus, we thank you for a new and better covenant with better promises. We thank you that the name of God is true in Old and New Testaments. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the diatheke, that you took care of everything. And Lord, help us to have the revelation that weakness is how your strength flows into us. And we don't add anything to it. We just simply receive over and over again your strength. And by doing that, we get to display what you're like to this planet. I bless each person in here in the name of Jesus. Amen.